listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 205. We're going to be talking to Dave Zirin about the wildcat sports strikes that are sweeping the country. But first, the news. During the first few weeks of the COVID-19 crisis, there was a rash of panic buying at local supermarkets, while bottlenecks in the food supply chain left many shelves barren. Meanwhile, the people picking, processing, and serving our food faced massive infection risks on the job. Though we have not yet seen widespread shortages, the pandemic has highlighted how precarious our food chain really is, especially for the poor and communities of color. A coalition of farm worker and rural advocacy groups has penned a letter urging congressional leaders to strengthen protections and funding support for farm workers, small farmers, and rural communities, as well as the entire food system, to ensure a fair, healthy, sustainable, and ethical distribution of food. They pointed out that much of the pandemic federal aid has been delivered to big agribusinesses and food companies, not small farmers, much less food chain workers. They warned that amid trade wars, severe environmental disasters, plus the pandemic, The food system, which provides about 22 million jobs across the country, or about 11% of the entire workforce, needs immediate relief to avoid collapse. More broadly, the coalition called for better safety protections and wages for workers in the food system, immigration reform to protect immigrant farm workers and their families from deportation, and a less consolidated, more resilient food infrastructure that can respond to future crises. I talked to two leaders of one of the farm worker groups leading the coalition, Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. Executive Director Nelly Trevino Salcedo and Director of National Policy and Advocacy Maria de Luna. They talked to me about why federal relief efforts have so far failed the farming sector and rural communities. And this is de Luna speaking first. These are workers who have been on the front lines risking their lives to make sure that our nation remains fed, safe, healthy, and secure, and yet lack those essential protections. They lack essential support. They lack the very things that they are currently working right now to do for others. And it is time that Congress takes into account their needs, their priorities, their concerns, and that of their families and their communities, who we know are currently going through some of the highest COVID rates in the country, right, in areas, specifically um, rural areas, um, that just are not as well equipped to deal with this deadly global pandemic. We say that that's wrong, and the coalition of over 160 organizations across the nation also agree with us and say that that's not right. Can you explain why the pandemic relief legislation so far has not reached farm workers? Is it the fact that many of them are not uh, citizens? Uh, Is it because of the jobs, the particular sector they work in? I mean, it's a host of things. I would start primarily with that, um, you know, a good majority or a good amount of the agricultural labor force is undocumented. Um, And there were huge immigration exclusions in the past uh, COVID relief packages that prevented them from being able to access, you know, financial relief, health care access, things of that nature that right now are incredibly vital um, as we're dealing with this deadly pandemic. Um, The other thing is that um, farm workers, you know, fear accessing, um, you know, uh, services and resources that they would otherwise, um, that they otherwise need um, because of the uh, public policies of this current administration. 
right? And so they're creating um, an inflaming fear among immigrant communities, among essential farming food system workers, their families, and the people who rely on them um, that have, you know, left them really out in the dark for this much needed assistance and aid. And we know, and at the same time, we know that, you know, we've, we've been working for decades. Uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this has not been just the only uh, uh, time that uh, farmer girls, people that work in the food industry have been invisible. People just know that going to the supermarket, you're going to find uh, fruits, vegetables, the food that they need. And, and if they don't find it at one place, they're going to find it in another place. But they don't know where it's, it's planted, where it's worked, uh, where it's, uh, they're harvesting all these fruits and vegetables, and who are these people, and what happens to these people. I mean, I come from that background. Maria's family comes from that background. We know what it is. We know what it is to be invisible and not taken into account and be exploited and be, be, be treated as if we were not human beings. Uh, there's, there's the thinking of that immigrants are just coming to take away uh, people's uh, jobs and people's uh, spaces, et cetera, when it's the contrary. We are here and we have been here way beyond and and in putting not only food in in people's tables uh because we know that if we stop we stop working then you know the country is gonna go uh into what uh not having food at all we're we're treated as we're seen as quote-unquote essentials because we're needed there but we're not treated as such and this has been, you know, all along, all, you know, ever, I mean, uh, our families have started our working since the 60s, uh, 50s, and others way before. And, uh, but this has had, this has been something that uh, has, you know, for centuries, uh, how workers that work in agriculture had, had been treated. We're becoming visible because if not, then the country will not have food for people to, to have on their tables. But we want, we want to say, you know, it, it, this, this cannot happen. You know, this cannot continue the same way. That was Millie Trevino Saceda and Maria de Luna of Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. We talk a lot about Amazon here for obvious reasons. It's a massive company run by the richest man in the world, reaches into all of our lives, and it employs a whole bunch of workers, many of them in not very nice conditions. So it doesn't surprise us that much that Amazon is hiring people to keep an eye in turn on its workers' activities. But the way they framed that ad got some people a little, well, angry. I reached out to Dania Rajendra from the Athena Coalition to explain. News broke yesterday that Amazon was hiring analysts um, that uh, amongst their job duties would be um, monitoring workers who were organizing um, 
as well as other people who were organizing about other concerns. So really a huge spectrum of working and working class people who might um, who might have concerns about how Amazon is treating them or showing up in their community. And so they literally sort of advertised this in a way that made it kind of sound like they're hiring spies. People helpfully save the description for us um, because, as I sure we'll get into, they took it down. Um, let's see. They're looking for a team of analysts providing high-level tactical and strategic intelligence products to global stakeholders within Amazon Worldwide Operations. Their team is located in Phoenix, Arizona area. Well, I, I don't know about Phoenix, but I certainly know about I know much more about this when it comes to Walmart, actually, because there have been some pretty good books written about Walmart's uh, anti-union operation at this point. But yeah, so how common is this, I guess, if, in your experience of companies sort of um, treating fighting unions like fighting a war? There's the history of the Pinkertons, certainly um, in plenty of industrial um conflicts between labor and capital in the 20s and the 30s and onwards. Um, this was a regular feature of um, the attempts to stop people for organizing for justice for their communities. And so in that way, it's I think it's deeply unsurprising. Yeah. The Pinkertons, of course, branded themselves as a detective agency. Well, I said this on Twitter, but I really highly recommend anyone with access to HBO watch that new um Perry Mason remix, not only are the costumes top notch, but there's a really great Pinkerton's plot line that I think um, connects with the way in which institutions like this show up, right? Like the Pinkerton's branded themselves as a detective agency. Um, when we headed into prohibition in the United States, the kind of proliferation of over-policing became a real problem, like an a exponentially bigger problem for communities, especially communities of color. Um, it's deeply related to the crises we face now. And the people that they are looking for in this job description are previous experience in intelligence analysis or watch officer skill set in the intelligence community, the military, law enforcement, or related global security role in the private sector. Um, so, like, you know. If you've got Amazon Prime Video, no shame. I've got it too. Like you see, it still says Black Lives Matter. Like Jeff Bezos is all up in Instagram, like yelling at that one customer about Black Lives. And they are hiring the people who are shaped by the systems that are the problem. Yeah. And I want to say, you know, it's like they do have this language here in their job description about like... Uh, let me find it here. The phrase labor organizing threats um, <laughs> is the term I think that came up. Yeah. But in addition, they're also looking to track funding and activities connected to corporate campaigns, internal and external against Amazon. Um, and just to say, like, it was clearly about workers expressing their discontent with the um, dangerous and unacceptable conditions throughout Amazon's operations. But it's also, it's not limited to workers, right? And at Athena, 
we're really big on the solidarity amongst people who currently work at Amazon or whose work benefits Amazon, like all the subcontracted workers and all of the people they're deeply connected to in their communities who might not work for Amazon, but are, are harmed both by how Amazon treats the people who work for it and treats the rest of us. Yeah. And so they freaked out and pulled the ad, but um, I suppose I wouldn't be able to let you off the phone here without just saying like, so what is going on at Amazon that they're so scared of? Uh, Well, it's been a big news summer, I would say. Um, Both good news and I suppose it depends on what your perspective is, if it's good news or not, but trying to put on my Amazon perspective goggles, um, you know, on the one hand, there's been widespread coast to coast, hundreds of people um, have been, who work at Amazon have been speaking out around the conditions, especially in the first wave of COVID in the United States. Mm. Um they got busted in France for uh, misleading uh, the authorities and the French public about whether they were shipping non-essential goods. Um, and um, there was a similar kerfuffle here. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time ever, their CEO, Jeff Bezos, um, headed to Washington to testify before lawmakers at the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee hearing, where he was grilled by members of both parties. So, um, and he also became the owner of a two hundred billionth dollar. He's the richest person on earth. Um, Amazon's worth more than a trillion dollars. They had record profits and income next, uh, in the last quarter. It's clear they're gobbling up market share, especially. In the United States, and yesterday I saw in the New York Times that, like, basically small business is facing a, you know, I think our friends at the Main Street Alliance called it uh, an extinction-level event. Um, And so, you know, my colleague at Athena, Stacey Mitchell, talks about how Amazon isn't just trying to own the market, they're trying to become the market, and they've made great strides in that um, in the last six months. And... Um, also, a former Amazon worker helped set up a cardboard guillotine outside of Jeff Bezos's Calorama um, mansion in Washington, D.C. last week. And I think, you know, people are justifiably outraged that, um, you know, the United States, for your global listeners, Sarah, I mean, The extent to which there is no social safety net for people in the United States is hard to overstate for people who don't live here. And um, there's no health care, right? It's still a pandemic. And the idea that corporations like Amazon that have more than a trillion dollars and Jeff Bezos, who has more than $200 billion, are not doing everything that they can to alleviate the suffering of the people um, around us, especially when so many of those people work at their company, um, is impossible not to be like infuriated by. <sighs> All right. Anything else people should know about 
all of Amazon's spy scandal, which is just, it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> well, news broke also that they are monitoring um, after the whole thing with uh, this job description, right? It came out later yesterday evening um, that Amazon is, of course, already monitoring the conversations that people have online, especially on Facebook. And I would end by saying the Pinkertons did not stop people from winning, like from overturning company towns across the United States. Um, the white supremacists with guns did not prevent the civil rights movement from eventually triumphing and winning the right to vote and other important housing justice and other important wins. Like, yes, uh, they will, uh, the forces of reaction are incredibly busy and um, our solidarity is um, stronger than that and, and we can win and, and we must. That was Dania Rajendra of the Athena Coalition. Earlier this week, it seemed like the New York City Teachers Union was on the cusp of a historic strike vote. Tensions had been building over several months, as many teachers argued that they and their schools were wholly unprepared to reopen this month, despite Mayor de Blasio's push to reopen all schools for in-person classes, while allowing some students to opt out for online learning. However, just before the United Federation of Teachers took a strike vote, and I had been seeing a lot of buzz online, particularly from DSA colleagues about organizing strike support teams in anticipation of a big work stoppage across the city, the city and the union actually reached a deal. The city announced that they would push school reopening back from September 10th to September 21st, and that there would be random spot testing for COVID-19 for about 10 to 20% of students and staff every month. And that seemed to be sufficient to satisfy the UFT head, Michael Mulgrew. Now, the deal that the UFT reached will not assuage the fears of teachers and school workers. They're still confused and frustrated about the haphazard remote learning arrangements of the spring semester. While the city has been gunning to reopen the economy and send parents back to work, school workers and teachers have urged the mayor to delay school reopening until there are appropriate safety protections in place. Teachers with the movement of rank-and-file educators, or the Moore Caucus, demand comprehensive testing of students and school workers, not just random spot testing. They also want assurances that the school buildings will be fully safe. They want adequate financial support for schools and equitable funding for poor communities and communities of color. And they want no reopening until there are at least 14 days of no new cases. The petition also demands a democratic, inclusive planning process in which, quote, parents, students, and school staff are fully empowered and including in planning for eventual school reopening and equitable remote learning that includes opportunities for outdoor education, in-person instruction, and therapeutic service delivery for prioritized student populations. Unquote. While the possibility of a strike vote later in the semester is not wholly out of the question, the preemption of the UFT's planned strike vote this week has certainly dampened the building momentum for direct action among the school's workforce. However, Moore is continuing on with its campaign, and it won't let up on its demands. I spoke with Ronnie Almonte, a high school biology teacher, union delegate, and member of the Moore Caucus, about his thoughts on the reopening deal and what the next steps are for Moore. What we were... I think told was yesterday that the executive board of the UST um, had voted unanimously to empower Mulgrew to uh, negotiate an agreement or a compromise. And if it wasn't agreed upon, then that would be a strike authorization vote. We were never surveyed by our union. We were never 
asked to vote on it. Obviously, um, we've never asked for input on this compromise. Um, and this compromise and last week's compromise on on uh, blended learning and how it would look like in the fall, the UST negotiated something separate last week around that, um, which we didn't vote on or ratify at all. Um, yeah, that seems it seems that where we won't be voting on a strike authorization. Will you still be preparing or organizing um, in anticipation of a strike, uh, even if this vote uh, has been apparently delayed? So the more caucus, right, the more caucus has had plans. I mean, the UFT announced this, it feels like years ago, but the UFT announced um, its interest in a strike authorization or strike campaign only a week and a half ago. Um, so the more caucus this entire summer has been planning for a series of actions in the fall, including uh, uh, off hours, uh, pickets around schools, um, telling you know parents and, and educators as they're entering or leaving school in person um, that schools are unsafe um, and that um, you know we shouldn't be in them. And we've been planning uh, sickouts. You know, we've been organizing and, and increasing our membership and having meetings and creating toolkits and plans and statements, um, trying to prepare people to, you know, to take actions, including sickouts, maybe not citywide, but sickouts in schools that are so open and unsafe um, and where we have a base. So that's always been the plan of the Moore Caucus is to plan, is to have some kind of, you know, action and even high stakes actions this fall, including sickouts. Um, you know, which we have experience in doing. We called, we planned for a sick out in March and, you know, it, the only reason we didn't do it um, is because uh, the schools were, that was enough uh, with other factors as well, but that, that sick out was enough to threaten the, the mayor to, um, you know, finally close the, the schools. I don't necessarily see this as a victory right now. Um, it's it's only a handful of you know weekdays. Um, I definitely think that the more caucuses work had put pressure on the UFT to, if belatedly, um, take a more militant posture. Um, you know, in threatening the strike, I don't think the more without the more caucus, it, it would have gone that far. Um, I mean, this is a dynamic that's common right in the labor movement like the more militant caucus or more militant rank and file kind of push the you know more reluctant leadership labor leadership um and the labor leadership kind of uses this militancy in the rank and file to kind of enhance its negotiating power um so that's definitely was the uft's i think the leadership the unity caucuses strategy um but it's unclear to me how much of a victory this actually is. Um, only 10 to 20% of students and staff seem to, uh, in this plan, seem to, um, are going to be tested, I guess, monthly uh, by random sampling. Um, that's different from like what the white private schools are, are doing. Um, Poly Prep, for example, I tweeted about this too, because I got a, I had a letter leaked to me from a, a worker at Poly Prep. Poly Prep is setting up its own uh, drive-through testing facility, and they're requiring anyone who returns to the school, students and staff alike, 
um, to test negative. Um, that is, you know, so white poly prep gets that, um, you know, gets to their, their community gets to return to a safer school than, than the public schools, even with this agreement now reached by the union. So this throws us under the bus. It undermines our leverage and power. Um, it makes schools, black and brown schools, unsafer than white schools. So it's a racial injustice. Um, and it's a shame that, you know, we weren't able to leverage our power to at least get mandated testing. Um, what we should have really been fighting for, and this is what the Moore Caucus has been arguing, is for full remote uh, for the fall because cases are increasing nationwide. Um, no layoffs and, you know, actual money to invest in long overdue facilities and ventilation upgrades um, and actual mandated testing um, once schools reopen, which, again, would not be in the fall um, because there's no plan. You know, there's, we're really not set up to, to go back safely at all. Um, by any metric, financial, public health wise, uh, logistically. Um, and, you know, the, the union leadership really threw, threw us under the bus here. That was Ronnie Almonte, a high school teacher and member of the Moore Caucus. The reopening of schools and universities, as you've heard right here, has been a fraught, messy question this year. And perhaps. No university has publicly handled this as messily as the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Students returned to campus, and predictably, there was a COVID outbreak. The school went all online, and many students have continued to test positive for the virus. We hear a lot about these issues in terms of students, graduate workers, and faculty, but what about the other workers on campus? Tina Vasquez at PRISM looked at the story through the eyes of housekeepers at UNC, and they told her that they feel like the university, quote, doesn't give a damn about them. Germany Alston, Vasquez writes, was tasked with cleaning portions of the athletic department. It was only after she did this cleaning that she learned from local media reports that more than 30 members of the athletic department tested positive for COVID-19, end quote. Alston also cleaned a residence hall where there was a cluster of the virus and was then instructed to get herself tested. Alston's union, UE Local 150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, has been organizing to demand safety protocols, and Alston is part of a lawsuit claiming unsafe working conditions at the university. Quote, everyone is scared, but it's like we're forced to make a decision between being quiet and keeping our paychecks to help us take care of our kids or to speak out about these conditions and maybe lose our jobs and be homeless. No matter what decision you make, you can still get sick from COVID-19, end quote, Alston told Vasquez. Alston and Penny, another housekeeper who spoke with Vasquez, described their struggles juggling their own work and their children's remote learning, their fears of bringing the virus home to those children, balanced against their fears of economic upheaval. They note that other university staff were able to stay home and still get paid over the summer, but the housekeepers were required to come in. They were not given hazard pay or any other incentives. Penny told Vasquez, quote, as frontline workers, we are really out here putting our life on the line, and it's like the university is playing Russian roulette with our lives. Last week, I was catching up with a friend by video chat when my phone started blowing up with text messages. NBA strike! 
by the time I got off my video call to check the news, the strike had spread to three different professional sports leagues and even to tennis. So what happened? Why did athletes decide to go on strike? And why did so much of the media report it as a boycott? Of course, I reached out to friend of the show and lefty sports reporter extraordinaire Dave Zirin to join us this week to talk about the strikes, what they've accomplished, what more the players want, and why the rest of the labor movement is and should be paying attention. Dave is the sports editor for The Nation and the author of quite a few books on the subject of sports, including A People's History of Sports in the United States, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, and he's also the co-author of The John Carlos Story with John Carlos and with Michael Bennett, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. So last week, we were treated to the exciting news of a multi-sport wildcat strike for black lives um in case any of our listeners really really hate sports or we're living under a rock or somehow don't know what happened and also because you probably have details that we don't um tell us what happened well it really starts by understanding the effect that the police murder of george floyd had on these athletes and on them seeing the way uh, it detonated into the largest protest movement in the history of the United States uh, by sheer numbers over the summer. Because uh, that led to a discussion among the NBA and WNBA players about whether they should, in fact, go to Orlando and enter this COVID bubble to finish out the NBA and WNBA seasons. Um, a large group of athletes said, we should not go. We should just absolutely forego doing this because it will take attention away from the protests in the streets. And another group of athletes said, well, no, we should go because uh, that'll give us a platform to speak about these issues if, if, you let, if we want to. And the NBA owners and executives and commissioner, they um, attempted to sort of sweeten the deal to get NBA and WNBA players into the bubble by saying, well, we can make this experience an expression of the Black Lives Matter movement. We'll put Black Lives Matter on the court. Uh, players can have slogans on the back of their uniforms. Everybody can kneel during the anthem without any punishment. <laughs> uh, Big change there. Yeah, huge change, huge shift. And that convinced enough of the players to go into the bubble to have their season. Now, fast forward, Jacob Blake shot in the back seven times in Kenosha. For a lot of these players, they started, there's no other way to put it, they started to feel like chumps. Uh, they're like, here we are, we're in this literal and figurative bubble, we have Black Lives Matter written on the court, and it doesn't really mean a damn thing. Nothing's changing. This is nothing. This is woke marketing at best. And so what the players said was it started with the Milwaukee Bucks, Milwaukee, of course, being just 45 minutes from Kenosha, where Jacob Blake was shot. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks said, we're not going to come out and play in our in our playoff game against the Orlando Magic. And that was a strike for racial justice. And it quickly cascaded uh, the other NBA teams, um, some of them happily, some of them felt a little bit, honestly, sort of uh, cornered and and um, and they resented the Bucks for doing this because they felt like they didn't really have a say in it, but they all felt like they had no choice but to then sit out their playoff games. Uh, the WNBA players quickly followed suit. Then it got really interesting, though, because then you see it cascade into other sports, uh, other sports that have much more uh, traditional and conservative constituencies, much whiter players, 
Uh, and so to see it have the impact, so you have this strike type situation uh, take place in Major League Baseball, for example, is a huge deal. Uh, like nothing we've ever seen in Major League Baseball before. To see it then impact uh, the National Hockey League and have them cancel a slate of games right there. To see Naomi Osaka, who's of Japanese and Haitian descent, bring it into the world of tennis. I mean, these are all uh, remarkable things, the likes of which we've never seen in sports history. I've been asked that a lot about what in sports history kind of prepares us for this moment. And the answer is is nothing. Nothing compares us for this. We're operating without a compass. Right, exactly. So in that, I mean, there are so many places to go from that. But um, one of the things about this, I mean, I think I even saw that it spread to esports with the esports team refusing to play, mm-hmm. um, that these matches get canceled. Um But one of the things that a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably noted is that the media largely report this as a boycott rather than a strike. Um, So I want to get your thoughts on this as why we've seen this before. I'm thinking of when the women's um, USA hockey team said they wouldn't play their championships without a contract. People also referred to that as them boycotting the game. So why do we talk? Why do people talk about this as a boycott rather than a strike? I mean, the the number one reason I think is just pure ignorance on behalf of the sports media. It wasn't the athletes calling this a boycott. Right. Uh, th- it was the sports media that immediately branded it with this idea of being a boycott. And I think it just comes from uh, not understanding both the political and just the basic syntactical differences between a boycott and a strike. A boycott is, of course, when, you know, for political reasons, one refuses to consume something. A strike, of course, is when somebody withdraws their labor from a process and brings it to a halt. These were strikes, not boycotts. Now, Amani Perry, the writer, uh, wrote something interesting that I'm still trying to get my head around about the ways in which um, sometimes like these sports like entertainments that are, are dominated by black labor are thought of as boycotts um, mm, because they're, they're sort of disregarded as, as, as actual work and um, and that there, there might be something to that as well that's, that's worth exploring, like how we view entertainment, how we view athletics, how we view them in terms of through, through a racial lens as well, mm-hmm. because there's this whole um, you know, racist discourse about how, you know, these athletes are just, you know, not really workers, that they're fortunate just to have these jobs. You know, Jared Kushner um, Mm -hmm. mounted that in his dismissiveness of what the players were doing. And, you know, that trope goes back for as long as black athletes have been successful in sports, that that it's almost like a a hobby that they happen to get paid for and they should see themselves as very lucky. Uh, in that process. But but at root level, I really do think this is just about syntactical and political ignorance. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I wrote about this in my piece, I think, about the way that like there's this sort of limbo that that athletes and other certain other types of workers often exist in where they're like they're workers sometimes and and when it's convenient for people to pretend that they're not working, mm-hmm. um, then you know, then they're not workers. Um, but associating it with a boycott in the tradition of sort of the Montgomery bus boycott and things like that is, is interesting. Um, in that that's like the way that black protest has been legible to a lot of white people in America. 
Exactly, exactly. And but, but of course, you know, when we look at objective reality, what was the Montgomery bus boycott? It was people refusing to ride the bus and right. impacting the economy of Montgomery, Alabama through their choice uh, as consumers in the transportation industry. This was a direct withdrawal of labor that brought a multi-billion dollar, if not trillion dollar global entity to a halt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we're um, looking at where this came from, I was reading Sterling Brown, one of the Bucks players Mm -hmm. piece at the Players Tribune about his own experience with police violence. Um, And so I'm wondering if you have any sort of thoughts about like, why this started in the particular um, locker room that it did, the players who seem to have been the leaders on this. Well, of course, you know, it starts with um, the proximity to Kenosha uh, that that Milwaukee has. Um, second is the players are not immune to the fact that Milwaukee is, um, according to actual study, the most segregated city in the United States mm-hmm. uh, with its own history of, of police brutality that's very intense and its own uh, very intense civil rights history that often gets ignored when we look at places like, you know, the Dixie South or Chicago or, uh, you know, or, or the West Coast. Uh, we don't we don't really um, take in how intense and deeply rooted that history is in Milwaukee. But um, in addition, I mean, you mentioned Sterling Brown. Sterling Brown was tased by Milwaukee police officers because of a case of, quote unquote, mistaken identity. We know what that mm-hmm. means. And uh, that 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 happened in 2018, and it's still in the courts. Uh, so his case is unresolved at this point um, against uh, Milwaukee PD. So that's part of his ongoing reality is this legal battle uh, with the Milwaukee Police Department, and he's part of that locker room. Um, in addition, the the star player for the Milwaukee Bucks is um, a player named Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, from Greece, and even though. Um, his experience in Greece uh, growing up was certainly marked by racism. Um, you know, the, uh, the Golden Dawn, uh, the fascist organization mm-hmm. um, in Greece has long used the Antetokounmpo family, which is their prominent family because all the sons play professional basketball, three sons with Giannis being a global superstar. Uh, they view them, you know, as, you know, as, as interlopers, as not real Greek people. And, um, and so they, they've been a target for the Golden Dawn. But even with that background by Giannis, um, he says that um, he needed uh, people like co- uh, teammates in the United States to let him know that it might not be safe for him to walk down the street in a hoodie, for example, if police officers are around. Yeah. And so that kind of basic day-to-day um, almost mundane specter of police violence and death was something that he had to come to the United States to learn was a possibility. And that had a great impact on Giannis. And um, I've spoken to some people who've had the experience of coaching all the Antetokounmpo brothers, and they, they speak about them being uh, very politicized by their immigration into the United States. So that's part of the story, too. And the fact that they have, you know, a white coach who seems very conscious, a guy named Mike Budenholzer, who Mm -hmm. was very out front speaking about what was going on in Kenosha right after the shooting of Jacob Blake. So I think all of that together played a role. And then lastly, you know, there's another very politicized team named uh, the Toronto Raptors, and they Mm -hmm. almost sat out a game the day before because of the shooting. 
of Jacob Blake, and they were very public about that. And I and I don't um, know this for sure, but I, I I imagine that you know that the Raptors being that public about it, it being a big story on ESPN, that it kind of raised the bar. Like, well, if somebody's going to do it, shouldn't it be the team that's closest to Kenosha? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've written a few books about sports history and the, the history of politicized athletes. Um, so give us a little bit of background for this and why, even though we've had athletes from John Carlos to Muhammad Ali, who've certainly spoken out about American racism, it's never spread like this before. Well, I mean, I think th- th- there are these sort of little moments peppered throughout sports history of athletes uh, going on strike or um, quote unquote boycotting certain mm-hmm. events um, because of racism. Uh, they're uh, usually what the, they're like two or three times where uh, Northern teams were doing um, exhibition games in the South and were treated so terribly um, in cities like Lexington, Kentucky, that they just said, screw it. We're not going um, mm-hmm. out onto the court or we're not going out onto the field. So you have those instances in history. Um, you had um, um, college athletes, particularly track and field athletes, who refused to play at Brigham Young in the late 60s and 70s because of the racist policies of the Mormon church. So there, there was something like in the ecosystem. And of course, you mentioned the, the efforts, the failed efforts to try to for black athletes to boycott the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City as part of the Olympic project for human rights. But uh, that did lead to John Carlos and Tommy Smith, two of the leaders in that fight to raise their fists on the medal stand and create that kind of um, indelible moment of sports protest and politics. Um, so, so you do have this, this, I guess, light history of these kinds of actions, but you've never ever had anything on this scale, these kinds of political right. strikes. Um, against racism. So then we have to ask ourselves, why? What's so different about 2020 that made this the case? And I think there, there are several factors. Um, the first is so clearly um, a decade of social media implanting itself in the political lives of these athletes. Like With each passing year, they realize that they have this incredible platform that's frankly far beyond what the bosses, the franchise owners have in terms of being able to shape their league. I mean, you can't compare the, the power in terms of shaping public opinion of a LeBron James with a Jeannie Bust, the, the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not even an equal uh, conversation. It's comical even to bring it up. So, um, so I think that's really changed the, the power balance in sports is the development of social media and the way athletes have used social media. Social media also allows athletes to connect with one another in a way that's very fast, very quick, and allows these uh, movements to then connect and spread with, with real rapidity from one to the other, as we saw last week. So, so I think that's one big factor in this. Um, another big factor in this is the fact that you have this uh, really now a generation of athletes who've come up in the four years, and I can't believe it's been four years, but in the four years since Colin Kaepernick took a knee. And there's this general perception among athletes that Colin Kaepernick took a knee and he had to pay the ultimate price for it, which shows that the league, uh, the NFL, uh, doesn't care about black lives because what Colin Kaepernick was doing was being basically a prophet. He was being prophetic with what he was saying, and he was right to protest. 
uh, he was saying that police get away with murder. And that's why he was taking a knee. And so for all these athletes in 2020, it's like they view themselves as picking up the baton and running with it and making sure that that message um, continues. And it's remarkable when Kaepernick took a knee, you know, just a smattering of players took a knee also. Yeah. You, know, you fast forward to today and it's entire, you know, it's entire leagues are taking a knee. And so th- that, that connection is something that um, speaks that, like, that part of sports history, the, the Kaepernick experience, I think okay. has impacted itself very strongly uh, on this generation of athletes. And then just lastly, one other point is um, if you look at the athletes who are hyper-political in the the 60s, I don't think it's a coincidence that many of them come from individual sports like tennis, track and field, boxing, of course, with Ali, Mm -hmm. because the team team structure has historically had a very conservatizing effect on players Mm -hmm. and on their demands. You know, this idea that you're being a distraction, this idea that you're being selfish, that you're taking focus away from the collective. Uh, mm. In this case, the fact that entire teams are getting on board, I've seen that it's actually having the opposite effect, where when you have players in the locker room who might be racist or might be apolitical or the like, mm. they're getting now pulled along into yeah. the struggle instead of, the, instead of the, the, the pull, the gravitational pull of the politics going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also wanted to ask you what you think about the context of the pandemic and the fact that these players are playing these weird games with no fans in the stands. Um, You know, I'm just thinking about like how different the response might have been if those WNBA players with the shirts with the seven shots on the back had come out and done that with a, you know, a mixed crowd of fans in the stands. Huge difference, huge part of the story that that this is all taking place um, in the bubble or that it started in the bubble. And it's it's an, I think it's a very underreported part of this process. I mean, first and foremost, you know, these players uh, are living the, the NBA and WNBA players are living in what's basically a dorm like atmosphere. You know, in they're Disney isolated. world. Yeah. It's so weird. It's weird. They're isolated from their families. They're homesick. They're cranky. They've talked openly about depression. And they're they're in close proximity, the NBA players, with the WNBA players who are more political and who have been leading the way on these questions for years. So what you have is kind of a hothouse environment where instead of going home after work and you're playing, you know, the, the old expression about the, the Yankees was 25 players, 25 cabs, you know, and there yeah. are a lot of teams that are like that. You know, you play your yeah. sport, you put on your headphones, you go home. It's a job. This is a very different kind of scenario right now. And so when you have a, something like a shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, it, it becomes this topic of conversation in the cafeteria, by the pool, you know, in the dorm rooms. You know, everything is is just yeah. tightly on top of each other. And so that that's had a political effect um, on the players themselves um, and, and on their and on their ability to act. And I think it, it once again, it speaks to the WNBA players and their influence. The other thing you mentioned, I think, is really important. Um, I, I'm thinking about the way the New York Mets uh, walked off the field after a 42 second moment of silence, 42 seconds, because that was Jackie Robinson's number and leaving a black lives matter shirt on the field and walking off. Now 
what would have happened if there were fans at that game. I mean, it probably would have been received very, very differently. Um, and it probably, frankly, wouldn't have happened um, as well. I mean, I, I, I have a hard time believing that that kind of walking onto the field and then walking off, you know, in front of thousands of people who'd paid money to get in there. I mean, I don't know how that could have even happened. Um, I mean, maybe it would have given the level of crisis, but, um, but it's, it's just much more difficult to imagine. But I think the, the absence of the fans has also given players a, a, a feeling of, of, of liberation, really, uh, that, 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 you know, they can uh, control the political message that comes from their workplace without fear of uh, reprisals. Because one thing's for sure is that the franchise owners are completely over a barrel on this one. And they're along mm, for the yeah. ride. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So let's talk about some of these owners because, like, you know, the, the common response to sort of sports protests or sports unions is often like, well, they're just a bunch of rich guys. And, like, the point is always that we have to make is, like, yeah, they might be millionaires, but, like, the owners are literally capital. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, it's the difference between uh, wealth, like generational wealth, and, you know, momentary riches. There's a reason why so many players end up bankrupt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a typical career in the NFL lasts only three and a half years. And it's not that much longer in the other sports. So basically yeah. they're making 99% of the money they will ever make in their lives before they're 30 years old. And mm-hmm. while you do have the, some of the star players who play into their 30s, that, that's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and then when you factor in, particularly in sports like football, but it's actually all sports, the health problems that come from playing in that kind of like very high stress, um, I mean, physical stress environment um, over the course of a year. I mean, th- this is uh, this is labor. This is work. And uh, it's it's certainly very well paid work, but it's also work that uh, only lasts a few short years. And that also puts an element of, of, of risk and power when they do these kinds of actions, because people, I think, in the public um, realize that they are, in fact, risking something when they take these kinds of political stances because their time in the spotlight is so small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was looking this up because I was just like, who is the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks? Turns out they're hedge fund guys. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so, so the owners are now saying things like, oh, you can take a knee and we'll put Black Lives Matter on the whatever. And I guess we'll turn sports stadiums into voting booths. But like, what more could some of these owners do? Well, first of all, I, th- I think what's interesting is that, you know, without a kind of call or connection uh, to the broader labor movement, the the players are left with a perspective that when thinking about what are we going to do, instead of looking horizontally towards labor um, outside the bubble, so to speak, it, it's looking to how can we extract concessions from ownership? How can we extract concessions from these billionaires? And obviously that makes perfect sense if you're talking about health and wages, but when you're talking about social and racial justice and you're talking about not only billionaires, but people who tend to be very conservative politically and in right. the NFL, actually, you know, the financial backbone of Trumpism, it becomes a much more complicated question. And so you see um, ownership, you know, trying 
to pull this into a safer direction while also showing the re- very restive players that they're serious um, about their demands. So that's where you see things like, well, let's talk about November. Let's talk about electoralism. Let's talk about turning the stadiums into into voting palaces uh, for people to come in and you know and and but there's there's also more than they can do and players are talking about this as well I just wonder about the limits of it where they say you know you're not just billionaires you know you're some of the most politically connected people uh, in the country um, you are not just connected because of your wealth you're connected because in cities where you have these publicly funded stadiums, there's a ton of intertwining between local politics and sports ownership. Right. And so the question is, what can you do to exert your influence to make sure that we have police reform, to make sure that we end police impunity, to do things like that? So there's going to be that push as well towards ownership. But once again, like I, I just have doubts that that's how change is necessarily going to happen. Yeah. Like the idea that a billionaire picks up their phone, hits speed dial, gets the mayor on the phone and says, uh, hey, let's talk about police reform over golf. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's a conception that a lot of the players have in terms of how change is going to come. And I think that almost by definition is going to come up and hit some brick walls. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote in in a couple of your pieces, actually, you noted that this was happening at the same time as the RNC was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And the contrast between, shall we say, two different types of leadership. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that's one of the things like, because there was this kind of sentiment on the left that, uh, you know, that maybe I'm overgeneralizing it, but I definitely got more than a few DMs or some and some snarky social media messages that, you know, none of this really means anything. And, um, and and I'm saying like, well, actually there there are three immediate things by the players doing this, what they did is first and foremost, I mean, and I think all three of these things are vital of importance. First and foremost, they recentered the discussion around Jacob Blake at a time when the discussion was going completely sideways and still is going completely sideways. I would argue, thanks to Joe Biden's speech, where mm. it's about rioting and it's about looting and it's about anarchists in the cities and all the rest of it. And it's like, no, this is fundamentally about the police in Kenosha shooting this guy seven times in the back in front of his kids. And the NBA players, much more than the Democratic Party, recentered that discussion around Jacob Blake. That's very important. Uh, the second thing, not just the NBA players, the WNBA players, um, the other athletes as well. Um, and I think of the WNBA players for what you mentioned before about them wearing the T-shirts with the seven right. holes in their backs. Um, the, the the second thing that they did, which is that they brought this – and this is so – I think this is going to end up going down in history is so important. They brought the question of labor and of the strike to the question of black lives and how we fight for black lives. And that's been such a, a missing and sidelined element since these protests have started uh, back in June. And they they have put the question now at the heart of how you fight for black lives in this country and how you resist Trumpism, too, I would argue. Um, and and th- this idea of them holding these political strikes. And then lastly, and this is so important in terms of the contrast with the RNC, they, they brought a sense of hope. Uh, to, to the idea that we can resist and we can capture the public's imagination and we can 
you know, reset the terms of this debate on terms that are moral and just and not on whatever insanity is coming out of the Trump administration. Um, and so I, I think that that, you know, in, during this day and age, hope is in very short supply and you can never have too much of it. Yeah. So we've seen workers in some other industries, I'm thinking about particularly the tech industry, um, come together as workers while protesting their company's involvement in racist policing and face surveillance and the military and all of these other things. Um, so how do you think actions like this that are, you know, essentially political strikes get workers thinking collectively about their own working conditions? Well, I can tell you, I, I got um, a bunch of calls Wednesday night from people in labor trying to figure out how they can contact Chris Paul, trying to figure out uh, he's the head of the NBA Players Association, trying mm -hmm. to figure out how they can contact other players. And it, it felt like that an electric prod had hit them. Um, they, they had this almost like uh, feverish excitement that like, wait a minute, we, we can do maybe we can do something as a union here um to to resist uh police violence and to you know certainly also show our black and brown members that their union is a vehicle uh for fighting around these issues right um so and but and I think that that's what the players have done is that they they they've removed it from being an abstraction or being sort of like an empty leftist call you know general strike for black lives and and made it um into something that says okay this can actually happen and and this this now becomes real as an option as a as an arrow in our quiver of something mm -hmm. that we can talk about and debate when we're talking about how do you resist racism and how do you resist trumpism how do you resist white nationalist militia violence you know like our 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 uh, horizons don't have to be limited to either you know peaceful marches or street style violence involving rubber bullets and tear gas it's like that there are other methods that are out there that we can do that could mm. bring the system to a halt um, in the face of this injustice. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the results that have come of this so far? Um, a lot of the players have, have resumed playing, but what are some things or some sort of promises they've extracted from people, but also, um, yeah, just, just what do you think is, has come of this so far? Well, I mean, we've talked about some of it. Um, you know, you've got the, um, the, 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 the push around electoralism, the opening up of the stadiums. Um, what you're also seeing is a lot of teams are trying to get out front of this, particularly in the National Football League. And instead of having it, you know, and, and this is like very smart from a, from a management perspective, given how tumultuous these times are, is that instead of having it be the players are threatening strike unless, you know, the team does something to show its commitment to social and racial justice, uh, ownership and management, they're meeting with players and then putting out joint demands. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's kind of remarkable and bizarre, but you've got like the Baltimore Ravens after a four hour meeting with players, uh, put out a statement calling for the arrest of, uh, the cops who killed Breonna Taylor, calling for the arrest of the police officer who shot Jacob Blake, uh, calling for the George Floyd Policing Act to finally get out from uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, boot heel to be put up. I mean, for the Senate early. would have to come back into session first, but you know. Yeah. 
um, call, <laughs> call in Milwaukee's case, the Bucks, they actually are calling for the state legislature to come back yeah. in the session mm-hmm. uh, to talk about some of the state bills that have uh, ground to a halt in that gerrymandered um, apocalypse of a state. Um, <laughs> and so, so you've got, um, and you're going to see more of that. Partly because the NFL season, as we're doing this uh, podcast, is about nine days away from starting, and yeah. they're, they're, they they cannot afford the NFL cannot afford strikes to cancel games. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's it's a much it's a much more stark dynamic than the NBA because you know the NFL they're not playing in a bubble. Um, all their money comes from television, pretty much, right. not from fans or anything like that. It's these billion-dollar television deals, right. and multi-billion dollars. And so they, they cannot afford strikes. So they're trying to show the players that they have this commitment. And so it's creating a different kind of model, which is you know management and labor for Black lives. <laughs> and coming, coming together to come up with uh, certain you know uh, things that they're calling for. And it's 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 interesting. Like like here here you have on like Baltimore Ravens uh team letterhead talking about how this country was founded on slavery and institutionalized racism and we acknowledge that as an organization and you're just kind of like, like Does the Washington football team have a new name yet? They do not. They are the Washington football team. And they they canceled practice and they they're doing all of this stuff while they're also under investigation for having a culture of um of sexual assault. Oh, great. Um, involving uh, cheerleaders and high-end boosters for the team. So they're now under investigation by the NFL. Uh, it, it's a total, uh, you know, and this is after they just hired the first black uh, team president in the history of the National Football League. So it's, it, there's this rush to provide um, serious, serious um, window dressing that, that changes. I'm not just talking about Washington, like, like across the league to show that change is on the march. You know, Roger Goodell even said we were wrong. He's the commissioner that we were wrong the way we treated Colin Kaepernick. I mean, they're trying to get out front of this. As fast- Who's going to be the one to hire Colin Kaepernick to be the ultimate window dressing? That'll be interesting. And, you know, if I was advising Colin and I'm not, I mean, I mean, he's been training six days a week to come back. But yeah. you know, I would say, you know, think very seriously about whether you even want to at this point. Uh, it's been four years. You know, you can't trust these people at all. Uh, just tread very carefully <laughs> because I wouldn't trust NFL owners. You know, it's interesting, too, because it's like not all owners are created equal. And you mentioned yeah. the tech people who run the Milwaukee Bucks before. Right. And that tends to be the t- if there's a typical NBA owner. Uh, they, yeah. You know, they're, they're all white except for Michael Jordan, but they also, they tend to be younger. It tends not to be a family business with a couple of exceptions. And yeah. they tend to be kind of much more like these uh, 21st century tech types and hedge fund types. NFL owners tend to be much more uh, troglodytic, much more Neanderthal, much more family business, much yeah. more old school conservative, much more hard right wing. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so speaking of people that we maybe can't trust, how did Barack Obama get involved in all this? Uh, great question. And something that I'm glad you raised. I was going to raise it if, uh, yeah. if you did, it <laughs> it's such an important part of the, of the sauce, so to speak. And it's one, the yeah. one I get asked about the most, um, you know, people like LeBron James and Chris Paul, I mean, these are people who, 
you know, have their own independent line to President Obama. And, you know, they got in touch with Barack Obama. They reached out to him and said, all right, well, what do you think? Do we go back to work or uh, do we just cancel the season? And Barack Obama apparently argued very strongly with them that they should go back to work. And instead, they should focus on both the November elections Mm -hmm. and creating a social justice committee inside the league that could deal with these issues. And this, to me, is Barack Obama, the moderate that he's always been and always will be. You know, I I never have understood the caricatures of President Obama, (laughs) either among his supporters or among the hard right wing. Yeah. Like he has always been, you know, how Adolph Reed described him 25 years ago. As in, in an article in, that was in The Progressive when Barack Obama was a state senator, he'd call, you know, like a, a basic neoliberal moderate, you know, and then so this is Barack Obama entering this situation and um, and trying to neutralize struggle. Uh, but but also, I don't think we should overstate his influence. And this is sort mm-hmm. of what I've been trying to get across to people who've and like, oh, this has been all totally co-opted. This is totally sold out because of Obama. Obama's proof of it. I think that doesn't get it either. Um, and it doesn't get it for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, even before Obama stepped in, the majority sentiment among NBA players was about going back and finishing the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he submarined something that otherwise would not have happened. Um, you know, that was already there. It was actually LeBron James, the Lakers and the Clippers were the only two teams that said, screw this, let's just cancel the season. Yeah. And so, so, so that, that's, so you can't say Obama is the reason why they're back to work. It's just not factually true. The second thing that I think people need to realize is that this situation really is on a knife's edge. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the time people even listen to this podcast, there's a chance there could be another strike among NBA players. Um, you know, things are on a very delicate footing. And when you have a president like we do, who likes to put out fire with gasoline, encouraging <laughs> white militias, uh, you know, this is not a sustainable situation. And the idea that the players are going to be um, sidelined bystanders to what's happening is um, now it's unrealistic. So yeah. the situation is still ongoing. Nothing has been co-opted. Nothing is over. Um, Obama acted like Obama and that shouldn't surprise anybody. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, so yeah, so that, that kind of got to my last question, which was going to be, you know, where do you think people go from here? Where, where do you think this goes? Um, now that it's something that, as you said, sort of can't be put back in the bottle in the same way. Yeah. Um, and I think where it goes, I don't mean to cop out on the question, but I really do think where this goes is going to be um, dependent on what happens in the streets of this country, uh, mm-hmm. both in terms of the movement and the left and the labor movement and what it does, and also what the cops and the white militias do. Because um, with this movement um, that we've seen in sports, you know, it is has been one that's been reactive in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one that flares up when you have these killings and you have the, the horrific hashtags that take place, and when you have people in the streets. Right. So I don't think people should expect athletes to do anything in a vacuum. Um, but I also think we're not living in a vacuum. 
right now. Yeah. So expect uh, more tumult to come as athletes are realizing their collective power. Uh, but it's something that's going to be connected to much broader forces happening outside the world of sports. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was David Zirin talking about the pro sports strikes and what they mean for the Black Lives Matter movement. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is Between Scylla and Charybdis by Marianne Garneau and Lexi Owens in Organizing.Work. In this era of hot takes and instant gratification, it's not surprising to see society's infatuation with speed, disruption, and chaos bleed into the world of labor organizing. There's a bit of romanticism surrounding what organizers call solidarity unionism, a type of workplace activism that takes place outside the confines of an official union and is not bound necessarily by the rules of the National Labor Relations Act. It is often associated with, quote, minority unionism, in which a union is active at a workplace but does not have the majority support of the workforce. The authors stress, though, that there are clear distinctions between the two, and they describe how media coverage tends to overhype structurelessness and get muddled about what solidarity unionism really is. They cite an article in The Nation about an informal organization created by aggrieved target workers, and an article in The New York Times about how to organize one's workplace, quote, without a union, unquote. Both these articles seem to depict new, innovative, and exciting forms of organization that are not encumbered by the red tape of the NLRB and are disrupting an older, sclerotic, outmoded model of labor organizing. Sounds intriguing. But, Garneau and Owens write, quote, the articles praise efforts among target workers, Google workers, and Uber drivers that have eschewed unions and have chosen instead to create informal working groups led by dedicated individual workers. These groups have carried out symbolic actions like one-day walkouts and have rallied their co-workers around social issues, enjoying some success. We have yet to see them build any significant capacity in the workplace. This has to do with their informality, the lack of defined membership and dues, the lack of formal decision-making or roles, and a scattershot approach to taking action that isn't tied to strategically building the organization, unquote. Despite the allure of this Silicon Valley-esque libertarian approach to labor organizing, the authors remind us that when it comes to really organizing a workplace, there are just no shortcuts. A lack of formality can be liberating in some ways, but often it is a hindrance when it comes to truly building institutionalized long-term power. I'm reminded of the words of Jane McAlevey, author of No Shortcuts and former belabored guest, who drew a line between mobilizing and organizing. That is, it's one thing to rally workers or community members for a short burst of campaign energy and to strike out for immediate, tangible wins. It's quite another thing to organize with a long-term vision and strategy in mind, and that requires a much deeper investment in radicalizing and educating the rank and file. One of the most common frustrations with mainstream unions today is that they have become top-heavy with professional managers and support staff who are increasingly out of touch with the rank and file. One might say that the majoritarian system of unionization in the U.S. has bred a peculiar form of minority unionism, where it's just a professionalized elite tier of the union's upper echelons that ends up speaking for the membership as a whole. And below them, there is an often marginalized majority of ordinary workers who don't have much say in how their union represents them. McAlevey warned that, quote, in this model, union staff need not engage more than a minority of the workforce in the fight, unquote, as organizers are focused on, quote, engaging only those already predisposed to support the union. 
union activists, unquote. Mobilizing McAlevey rights involves low participation from the membership, while CIO-style organizing is driven by a sense of class struggle, which engages the majority of workers, seeks to collectively bargain in an open, democratic manner, and foregrounds organic worker leaders rather than pro-union activists with extensive resumes. Drawing on the history of the industrial workers of the world, Garneau and Owens explain that while the New York Times has presented solidarity unionism as an anything-goes approach, in fact, they stress, quote, solidarity unionism is a very specific approach to worker organizing that has been honed over the years by IWW organizers on the basis of experience. It means democratic decision-making by the workers in a workplace about what demands to make and what actions to take to win those demands. The ultimate goal is to shift the balance of power at work by exercising power over production and the day-to-day operations of the shop, unquote. A majority is more than just a validation of your organization and hard work. It also translates into real leverage in the workplace, especially when there's a confrontation between workers and management, the latter of whom are almost always ultimately outnumbered by the former. The authors point out that, quote, in order to wage a successful strike, Unions need to mobilize a majority of workers to leave their posts and halt production. This pressure, or the legitimate threat of a strike, forces the bosses to negotiate and concede to major demands. Unions that are unable to sign up a majority of workers fall apart eventually because they can't use every available tool in the unionist tool belt to win, unquote. It's true that the majoritarian model of union representation has created some overly bureaucratic corporate unions, but it's hard to be a real representative of the workers when you can't make the case that you've got most of the workers behind you. The authors conclude, quote, the last thing you want to do is convince workers that there are no rules. A loosey-goosey approach merely reinforces the idea that there's only one way to organize seriously with any kind of discipline. We have to navigate between the skilla of the NLRB straitjacket and the charybdis of structureless minoritarianism, unquote. Rebelling against the rules is, of course, tempting especially at a huge workplace like Target or Google, where you may deal with the tyranny of executive leaders without any incumbent union at work to back you up. And it is possible to mobilize people without a firm structure or plan. But genuinely organizing people from the ground up requires discipline and effective, sustainable labor militancy requires cohesion and strategy. There is something comforting about the pursuit of principled minoritarianism that can be soothing and exhilarating. But when it comes to class struggle, nothing beats just plain winning. Police unions are a thorny subject, and I found basically every article written on them in the last several months pretty frustrating. Until now, Eve Ewing wrote the piece on police unions that I've been waiting for in Vanity Fair's new issue, the one with Breonna Taylor on the cover. The piece is titled Blue Bloods, America's Brotherhood of Police Officers, and it makes the very important points about police unions that have been missing in so many cases, that police unions are fundamentally different from other types of labor unions in that they operate more like a fraternity or at times like a crime syndicate, protecting members at all costs and treating the rest of the world as outsiders to be controlled. Ewing is a poet as well as a scholar, and so this piece is both historically informed and beautifully written. She writes, quote, There are people who will tell you that people like John Evans lead a union, but this is not a union. This is something else. This is a brotherhood. It abides no law but its own. It scorns the personhood of all but its own brethren. It derides all creatures outside its own clan. And for that reason, the brotherhood is not only a hurdle impeding reform. 
It is the architecture of an alternate reality, one that seethes and bubbles just beneath the surface of our own. And it's a reality in which none of us are human. End quote. That line of difference, she explains, means that police set themselves apart. Quote, the same logic underlies the phrase blue lives matter, which semantically equates the color of a uniform with the non-negotiable, unshakable fact of blackness. It's a phenomenon not unlike the transfiguration that took place behind the eyes of Darren Wilson. It looks like a demon, he told the grand jury in describing Michael Brown. Michael Brown, not man, but beast. Jason Van Dyke, not man, but kin. A brother in the pantheon. A demigod among demigods. His actions deemed necessary and virtuous because they were wrought by his hand, and his hand was necessary and virtuous. Of course, as Catanzara's comment about support for protesters demonstrates, it's not that it's impossible to be cast out from the Brotherhood. The unforgivable sin within the Brotherhood is to cast aspersions against the only people whom the Brotherhood recognizes as human, its own kind. Shoot a boy in the back and you can still be in the Brotherhood. Side with the people who are asking questions, or raise a fist with them, or kneel before them, or talk to them, and you are out. End quote. In short, she writes... Quote, the fraternal order of police has told us candidly what they are, that they are not a union, but a fraternity, a brotherhood. We ought to believe them. History would suggest that unionism and policing are at their foundation incompatible. For one thing, the officers who founded the FOP made it very clear that it was not a union. In the volume The Fraternal Order of Police, 1915 to 1976, A History, a work commissioned by the FOP itself, co-founder Martin L. Toole is quoted as saying, we are banded together for our own enjoyment. Founding officers rejected the name United Association of Police because that name sounded too much like union and union sounded too antagonistic. These officers sought a way to bargain collectively over issues like wages and hours without affiliating themselves with labor organizations, end quote. A point that many others have made, but the bears repeating, is that the labor movement has long clashed with police who are there to protect capital. She points to examples from the 1886 Haymarket Affair to the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain to the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre, reminding us of the casual brutality that marked these workers' fights for some sort of justice in the workplace. While unions are supposed to fight for the whole working class, police organizations of necessity do not. The police brotherhood, she notes, is something else. Quote, the whole point of the brotherhood is that it enables a willful not knowing. The brotherhood swallows all other planes of reality that could pose an existential challenge. I had asked the wrong question because the answer to how can you call someone your brother when he does something like that is because he is my brother. The brotherhood is a self-contained universe with its own physics, its own gravity. Within a band of brothers, there is no law that supersedes the law of the brotherhood itself. End quote. The piece is so good and so beautifully written that I just kind of want to sit here and read it all to you, but I cannot, so I will instead close by telling you to go read it and leave you with just this last bit. Quote, the institution of policing as a means of violently controlling working persons' right to economic freedom has deeper roots than even the labor movement itself. The need to attack workers in the name of private interests is historically intertwined like a double helix with the need to control, limit, and sanction Black autonomy. End quote. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on schools and universities, sports strikes and scabs, farm workers, and police unions. 
Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneberg for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sending us your stories. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast either over at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you do not have the spare cash right now, believe me, we understand. But if you do and you haven't joined up yet, you can get some really, really lovely portraits that Molly Crabapple did of workers who were still working during the pandemic as part of our highest tier rewards. And as always, you can find out more about everything we've discussed this week on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are striking for hazard pay or sick time, delivering groceries or cleaning campuses or shelving goods at Amazon, you can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.